Hello and welcome to Cosmos Science Daily, where journalists at the Cosmos Newsroom report on the latest research and discoveries and explain the science behind the headline news. Today's newsroom journalist and biology graduate specialising in the human microbiome, Matilda Hansley-Davis, is talking about rebuilding for flood resilience with yours truly, Dr. Sophie Calabretto, applied mathematician and fluid mechanist who does not approve of the fluid in a flood. So we all know that thousands of people in New South Wales and Queensland have had their homes damaged or destroyed in recent flooding, and there are continued flood warnings for certain parts of New South Wales. And this all comes only a year after major floods in New South Wales in early 2021. So what we do know is that with climate change, this danger definitely isn't going away. So what Matilda is helping us with today is how we can use science to build back with better flood resilience. So to, to start off with, Matilda, when we talk about flood resilience, what are we essentially talking about here? Yeah, that was actually the first question I had as well, because it's a term that gets thrown around a lot and it sounds really positive, but I really wanted to dig in and say, well, what what is it exactly Mm. that we're aiming for when we say flood resilience? And so essentially flood resilience is the ability to withstand or absorb the damage from a flood and also to bounce back quickly afterwards. Okay. So this can include both the properties of the natural environment, so waterways is obviously a big one, the Mm -hmm. built environment, so things like building materials, building codes, and the human aspects of the community as well. So how socially connected the community is, what kind of leadership we have in our communities, those all feed into that resilience and bouncing back. Okay, so it's basically everything. So it's it's about having all of these different things in place that so collectively, after there's been a flood, we're in the best possible position we can be in. Yeah, so in terms of increasing flood resilience, you can look at so many different things like building design, how we track and try to model and predict floods, Mm -hmm. warning systems, land use planning. There's, yeah, just so much to think about. It's actually very huge. Yeah, so I want to, can we touch on buildings first? Because I used to live in New Zealand and I found that a lot of the buildings kind of bounce a little bit and I didn't really understand at the beginning and it's because they're being built to withstand earthquakes right so you want a little bit of a give so it means that you know if you're sitting at a desk and someone is walking past you with very heavy footsteps you will vibrate but that is good because it means that when there's an earthquake the building is kind of going to absorb that shock rather than just kind of crumble are there things that we can do to make buildings more flood resilient as opposed to earthquake resistant Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing example. Thanks. But yeah, in terms of uh, floods. So yes, definitely. So things like the building materials. So for example, tiles are more flood resilient than carpet, you know, they're less Mm -hmm. damaged, it's easier to clean up afterwards. Yeah, solid timber is more flood resilient than particle board and then your steel is uh, even better. Yeah. Um, There's also so zooming out a little bit things like raising houses above the ground. And uh, one of the experts in environmental architecture that I spoke to for this story mentioned that in a lot of parts of Asia, there's traditional architectures often built on stilts, um, yeah. even you know, sort of in the water or just on the edges of, of a lake or river. Is so it's a, not a new idea. Sorry, I was going to say, is that what a traditional, is that what a Queenslander is? Like those wooden houses, are they built on stilts? No, maybe. You know, I was wondering that too, because they kind of are, they're raised off the ground. Yeah. But um, this is not from my research for this story, um, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's more to do with the heat. It helps air oh, circulate a bit better. I don't think it's for flooding, but it might be. 
Um, that's anyway, a little sorry. bit out of my expertise, but <laughs> but yeah, so so stilts or in a more durable option is concrete blocks. So rather than the wooden or bamboo stilts, and right. so what this does, it raises most of the house and of course the possessions inside the house yeah. higher up. So hopefully out of harm's way if the water isn't too high. But it can also help with a problem called settling, which is where a flood causes the land or the soil to kind of shift and the house sinks down into the soil. So most houses in Australia, we have one solid kind of flat block for the foundation. But if you have multiple blocks or stilts, you can then have differential settling depending on how the land moves. And that's a bit easier to fix because you can... I say this, this is what someone told me. I haven't tried it myself, but theoretically you can dig into just the one or two spots that have sunken down and refill them to try to bring the building level again. Right, okay. So then you're not dealing with this kind of one cumbersome block. You can kind of – it's like when you go to a cafe and you get a chair and it's like slightly wobbly and you just put a tissue under one of the legs. Yes, yes, that is my (laughs) understanding. (laughs) Um, And so some other things you can do is placing electrical systems and PowerPoints above the waterline if possible. Mm -hmm. That can save a lot of headaches. And including a room above the waterline as well that's accessible from the outside, very helpful if you need to retreat or escape in a very severe flood. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of movies where it turns out if there are sharks in the floodwaters, uh, then they become really bad C-grade horror movies, and that was a huge problem. People got to the top of their house and they had nowhere to go because they weren't built high enough above the flood line. Wow, I, I really I wasn't worried about sharks until now. You just brought that up, and now I'm, like, extra scared. Just to make it worse, there's also scenarios with alligators and crocodiles as well. Um, anyway, so that's we're talking about the house. So that's all about the house itself. Are there things that we can kind of do surrounding the house that would help? Yes. So where you build is obviously definitely important as sure. well. So we all know a lot of Australia's population do live around the coast, and quite a few of us live on floodplains. So yeah. maybe. According to experts, deciding not to develop those floodplains further and build more houses there is potentially a smart idea. Yeah. Um, there's actually a pretty famous example of a town called Grantham in the Lockyer Valley in Queensland that had really devastating floods back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And almost all the houses were, were damaged or destroyed in those floods. And the council and state government actually moved nearly all of the residents to higher ground when they rebuilt Grantham afterwards. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, I mean, it reminds me again, I'm just going to digress because apparently it's what I'm doing today. That was like, I went on a ghost tour of the Seattle underground and bear with me for a second. Um, I know that ghosts aren't real, but I love a ghost tour. Um, And the Seattle underground, I think is basically where Seattle was originally, but it was built in this floodplain. And then I think it was actually all destroyed in a fire, which was the reason they had to rebuild. But when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it just like two levels up so when you so you can go and like reinvestigate the old Seattle underground but that was just like the old part of the city that was built in a dumb place and then they went yeah two more like levels up and then it meant that when it flooded that it was just like flooding the weird old parts of the city and not the city itself so yeah that's I mean although that's I'm sure that's logistically difficult right to it, it is. It definitely is. But it was something that so one of the experts I talked to was Adrian Turner, who's the CEO of the Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative at the mm-hmm. Minjuru Foundation. And he was definitely adamant that it's a conversation we should maybe be having a bit more about, you know, just moving people, moving communities out of these you know, most risky areas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Um, and then so there's also other things to consider about the surrounding environment. So where and whether dams and levees are built. So I, I didn't, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't really know what this word meant before I started working on this story. But a levee is kind of like an embankment of usually soil that's sort of built high up on a riverbank to try to contain the floodwaters oh, and keep them from okay. spilling over yep. into the surrounding landscape. But, but that might be something you know a lot more about than me. <laughs> no, not Yeah, no, I think I'd heard of a levee, but again, had never thought to look it up before. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those um, things you hear and you're like, oh yeah, I have a, I have a vague idea of yeah. what that does, but not exactly. Um, and then maintenance of healthy wetlands and estuaries with the right kind of plants can actually promote better drainage. And mm. um, so that's very helpful in a flooding situation and keeping debris out of waterways and so forth. Yeah, I definitely noticed that with, I say, the recent New South Wales flooding, which is now kicking off again. But yeah, one thing that I noticed is that just the streets can't cope and a lot of it yeah you look you just see there are leaves and there's just all of these like crazy things I mean I guess it's a city so it's slightly different but I yeah that seemed to be one of the huge problems right the water had nowhere to go yeah yeah exactly and that's the place where I think science can really help hopefully is how to you know design our cities better so Mm -hmm. that you know they can cope with these things maybe it's different building materials or you know incorporating more plant life and that kind of thing yeah but um Something that, that didn't actually come up when I was speaking to experts about this story, but I've been thinking about a bit since is Indigenous knowledge about floods and flood resilience in Australia yeah. as well, because, you know, this is something that's increasingly recognised by non-Indigenous Australians when it comes to bushfires. So things like traditional cultural burning practices of low intensity fires that regenerate the landscape and reduce the risk of extreme bushfires. And I imagine there's also a lot of knowledge among traditional owners about weather and water systems and and flood and the environment, you know, these environments where people have been living for tens of thousands of years, you get to know really well how it reacts. So that's not something that I hear talked about a lot in the Mm. flood space, but I think it will be interesting to see if that might change in the future. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, we forget that we have this amazing resource that is our First Nations people have been here for, as you said, what's like 60,000, 70,000 plus years, you know, and their connection to sort of land and culture and sea. I mean, they've been experiencing this. So, yeah, 100%. I agree. I hope to hear more about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they saw like, you know, the end of the last ice age and, you know, the sea levels rising and engulfing. Uh, you know, bits of the country that yeah. used to be higher up, you know. So, yeah, there's so much so much knowledge there. A hundred percent. So what what can we do? So obviously <laughs> when you looked at this story, you've also looked at solutions that science have for us. Yes, I, I did. So, and again, it's one of those things, such a, such a big idea of yeah. resilience, so many different aspects to it. So I can't cover everything, but uh, there are some things we can do, of course, at a household level to make our houses a bit safer or you know, have a flood preparedness plan if we need to evacuate. But it's it's true that a lot of these sort of household level solutions need, or any of these solutions need greater resources and coordination than we can really do on our own. So like, for example, I'm a renter, I can't just decide to swap out the carpet in my house for tiles or yeah. just move the PowerPoints higher on the wall. Matilda, um, I feel you. I just need someone to cover the skylight in my house with a blind <laughs> and I'm not allowed to be that person. But, yeah, that, yeah, that is true. 
Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's one one issue we need to be thinking about. And then, you know, across Australia, we currently spend 97% of disaster funding on recovery and only 3% on mitigation and preparedness. Whoa. So, and that was something that came up several times with multiple people I spoke to for this story. So there really needs to be a shift in, in thinking there. Yeah, 100%, especially if we know that this isn't going away because of, yeah, climate change, essentially, right? It's not getting better. Exactly. Um, so one thing that the Fire and Flood Resilience Initiative I mentioned before is quite big on is space-based surveillance and collecting data from space, you know, using satellites, et cetera, yeah. that you can use to better model and predict how floods will behave. So that's quite an exciting area. And then another aspect that experts mentioned was data sharing across different levels and areas of government. So we have the best data and coordination of flood response. So like this yep. month, we've had both southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales affected by big flooding. But if you think about it, that's really an artificial border. You yeah. know, it is one land yeah, mass. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So coordination, data sharing was another big thing that came up. And then, of course, the huge thing I'd be remiss not to mention, which I think we've talked about in every episode so far, unfortunately, is the constant presence of climate change yep. and increased La Nina events, which increase the risk of severe flooding. So anything we can do to reduce mm -hmm. further climate change will also probably make us less vulnerable to these extreme floods going it's, forward. Yeah, it's almost like who knew that by destroying the planet, we would really break a lot of the things on it and in I know, it and I'm, around I'm, it. I'm gobsmacked, honestly. We're just her. Anyway, that was, I mean, on a positive note, it sounds like we're thinking about it now. Um, and that was, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much, Matilda. I guess I'd never, I'm glad that there are people who are thinking about this more than I am because as someone who is in New South Wales but not in the dangerous part, like I am really concerned for all of my fellow people here. So yeah, thank you for that. And thank you to everyone for listening. Make sure to keep an ear out for our next instalment of Cosmos Science Daily. This podcast was brought to you by Cosmos, a publication of the Royal Institution of Australia.